days is the uh, second time in chapter 3, the third time in the epistle, for this reason. And of course, it points to what has preceded. And you can, as you study the Bible, you can ask the question, is he talking about everything he's written in the letter to the Ephesians, or is he talking to what, about what he has just written? And I think for our purposes, and, and, and just biblically speaking, it appears that it is what he has just written that is so important to what he's about to say. So that uh, here he's spoken of the mystery of the gospel in the previous chapter. The, our pastor, Dennis, uh, preached on these verses. Notice in verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We have access. He's highlighting the fact that he, we have this privilege of coming before God. We've just sung of our holy God. Holy, holy, holy. And yet we have access to come before him with our prayers and petitions. And so it makes sense. And even in the preceding reference, this word access, it shows up again in Paul's writing here in this portion of Ephesians. So that he is saying, because we have access, I bow my knee. Now, just uh, taking this apart, you might ask, should we always bow our knees when we pray. Can you pray when you're not bowing? You know how that works, right? It's the question, uh, is it all right to pray while I'm smoking? Turn on its reverse, is it all, is it all right to smoke while I'm praying? Kind of answer that question differently. I, I guess that falls on a crowd that doesn't smoke. That's fine. I don't either. You might update it. You know, is it all right to pray while watching a movie? Is it all, all right to watch a movie while you're praying? The one we answer and say, well, pray without ceasing. Pray always. Maybe the movie stirs you to pray. But no, don't watch a movie while you're praying. Give all your attention to your praying. And so it is here, we come to this thing about bending our knees and our posture in prayer. Is it significant? Well, it's in the present tense. It's not saying, I did it once. I do it. It is my practice on the part of the Apostle Paul. Should we then argue that only true prayer can be done on your knees? Well, let's, let's look a little bit further and see how the apostle answers that question. He answers it by focusing upon his theology and the difference it makes that he is seeking a father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. Remember, Adam named the animals. That was part of his responsibilities of kingdom keeping in the garden. It was his privilege being made in the image of God to name the animals. But he did not name mankind. 
No, every family on heaven and earth is named by our Heavenly Father. Again, it's in the present tense in the original. It's an ongoing work. There is no one alive who is not made in the image of God, who is not prized by our Heavenly Father, Arab and Jew alike, made by God and named by him. We have to let that sink in. Who is this God that we are seeking? He is the God of Jew and Gentile, heaven and earth. This is the one that Paul is approaching. And this is the one whom, from whom he seeks an incredible reality. Out of the bounty of our heavenly Father's glory. You have to pause and, and just wonder what it was like to be Paul's secretary. Say that again, Paul. Say that again. I'm not sure I got it. Can you just repeat the whole prayer? That he is bending his knee that he might seek the face of the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory. How rich is his glory? How vast, how amazing. Now that's a question that we're going to have to hold in suspension. Because that's the subject of Paul's prayer. That out of the vast dimensions of the glory of our heavenly father, that he would see fit to answer Paul's prayer. Now, I think you should pray on all occasions and at all times, even as you're sitting in the pew today. I hope you're praying that this text will find its mark and hit its, hit its uh, bullseye. I hope that you're praying. You don't have to be kneeling to pray. But it's not by accident that Paul, who knew the comfort of a jail cell, found the posture of bending the knee before the Father, God of heaven and earth, owning his holiness, amazed at his majesty, overwhelmed by his love, bent the knee before him. Let me urge you, if that's not your practice, if you've never laid your face to the ground before God, your posture may indeed shape your thoughts. It may transform your prayers. But it is fundamentally your theology that will bring you to your knees. It is your understanding of who God is that will cause you to pray great prayers, but to pray them in a way that he hears and listens to your, your, your prayers. So, uh, the first takeaway then is that, that your theology is a key to a healthy prayer life. Second takeaway is this, overcoming discouragement, picking up on our pastor's theme, overcoming discouragement is 
a work of the Holy Spirit in the inner man. I want you to hear that. You can turn to food. You can turn to entertainment. You will never overcome discouragement. The things that this world offers will not do. You are a very special, specially crafted being. And overcoming discouragement must be done in the inner recesses of your life, in the inner man. Notice how the Apostle Paul emphasizes this in his prayer, that he may grant you, picking up in verse 16, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I'm going to stop there. I have a few tools in my household that are, are meant to uh, build strength. They generally gather dust. Occasionally we hang clothes on them. But uh, a treadmill, so forth, you know what I'm talking about. I know that when I use them, they really do work. But I just choose not to use them more often than not. That's the physical body. But Paul's not talking about the physical here. He's talking about the spiritual. And you, like me, are probably inclined to neglect your spiritual needs even more than your physical needs. One of the beautiful things about this area is the ability to walk the trails and hike the mountains. What attention do you give to your spiritual needs? You need to be strengthened in the inner man the Apostle Paul presses upon us. And we need to think about what it takes to be strengthened. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit that he might indeed so strengthen us and that we might be prepared that Christ might dwell in our hearts. Here's the fundamental premise. Uh, this is the second prayer of Paul, actually, in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 1, this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And I stopped there only to point out that you see in Paul's prayers in the first chapter and now in the third chapter that Paul's concern is your inner man, that you might so know the truth about Christ 
that you might so know God that he would dwell in your life, that you'd be strong enough for that, strong enough by the Spirit's design to be able to handle what God has in store for you. How strong are you spiritually? And how do you test that? How do you even know whether you have the strength to handle the things of God? Notice then, as we look at how we overcome discouragement, we must be strengthened on the inside. That's the first aspect. The second aspect, that Christ may dwell in your inner being. Thirdly, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Christ might dwell in your inner being, that you may comprehend, that you may understand, that you might know. It's one of the reasons Christians are so passionate about teaching our children. There is a comprehension to our faith that is so essential to a vitality of our spiritual life. It's not enough to feel. We need to understand. We need to know. There is a governing principle that the Holy Spirit facilitates as he strengthens us to know God and that the life of God might dwell in our soul. How can we give a higher degree of understanding or expression than the way Paul concludes the matter by saying that you may be filled with all the fullness of God? The life of God in the soul of man. How are we to conceive of that? How are we to understand that and bring that together in a tangible way that we pursue it? Well, Paul, I think, does us this service by breaking it down into its various aspects. Comprehending that it won't happen by accident. It won't happen just because you join the church. It won't happen even just by attending Sunday school. There is an engagement that takes place by the Spirit's power that enables us to grapple with the truth of God's word, to try to wrap our minds around what is communicated in that holy word. And not just to know the scriptures, but to know the God of the Scripture so that we might actually be enthralled, that we might find pleasure in knowing God as he has made himself known in his holy word. This is your, your gym coach speaking to you, you see. This is, this is Paul saying, don't think you've arrived. You haven't. The work is not done. The flexing. The pulling, the racing is not complete. My prayer for you 
is that you might know the fullness of God and he might dwell in your being. Oh, beloved, some of you may be inclined to think, if I just knew the magic rule or the magic key to overcoming discouragement, then life would be easy. No. God has created you a far more magnificent creature than that. There are no magic buttons. There are no mechanisms. There is the work of the Holy Spirit, which must engage you in your inner man. And to do that, he does it through his word, making known the glories of his being. And so you see, as we ponder what Paul meant by the riches of his glory, we see how he unpacks that in terms of the spiritual life of believers. And it is in that engagement with the riches of his glory in the inner man by the work of the Holy Spirit that we learn of the love of Christ and the love of God. Now here's the wonder of this text that just uh, presses itself upon us. This is not simply learning the scientific table or mastering a set of facts, such as the uh, doctrines of grace or the solas of the Reformation. This is indeed knowing God in his love and experiencing, and I not endorsing the book and experiencing God. I'm not endorsing that at all, but the reality that we would know God according to his truth and experience the reality of his love as revealed in the scriptures. That is what Paul prays for. And I love the reality that even as Paul prayed that for the Ephesians, he prayed that for you and I as well. He prayed it for all who would be impacted by the preaching of the gospel from his day forward until the Lord returns. It was his zeal that God's people would know the fullness of Christ. Now, uh, the third takeaway. Doxology and praise rooted in gospel truth, is the God-given antidote to defeat, depression, and darkness. Let me say that again. Doxology and praise, rooted in gospel truth, is the God-given antidote to defeat, depression, and darkness. And Paul sets that forth very, very clearly as he follows up with the incredible realities that he has just expressed concerning his prayer. Now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now we recognize that as a benediction. You've probably heard it a thousand times if you've heard it once. I wonder if you've grasped its significance and meaning. It's just a beautiful, beautiful benediction. No question about it.
But have you grasped it? It's to be understood in the light of what he's praying for, isn't it? He's praying that you, as God's people, may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now, the one who is able to fill you, he offers up his praise and adoration to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. You may, may have thought about that in terms of your budget. Maybe that's one of your concerns, is to pray that God would enable you to make it to, through school without debt. Not a bad a prayer. Not talking about your budget or the short lifespan of your paycheck. Not at all. Not even talking about your health. You and I alike would love to be free of the trials that our health presents, to be sure. But his power is not principally considered here in that context. The context tells us that the power that he uh, knows is there is at work within us that we might experience the fullness of God in the inner man, that we might know the breadth and length and height and depth of God's glorious love to us in Christ. When I was first converted, I heard John 3.16, for God so loved the world. You know it. You could recite it with me, can't you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him might not perish but have everlasting life. I thought, wow, that's me. He loved me. Gave me a son that I might have everlasting life. I believe that. I trust in him. In time, through the work of the Holy Spirit, I began to realize that verse says so much more about God than it says about me. Wow. God so loved the world? John understood that. Jew and Gentile alike. God so loved the world. I was amazed by that. It's kind of clearly written. You might think I was a little slow. Why didn't I get it? In time, I began to have the exposure to Owen's volume on the glory of God. And I mention it just in case one of you wants to pick up on it, read it. Owen expounds on the inner Trinitarian conversation between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And how the Father chose to redeem a people for his son, to be a bride for his son. And how the son, and here's where I was struck uh, with incredible amazement. The son thought, no one will know my father the way I know him unless I offer my life for their sins and redeem them as a people for my God. And it was the joy of the father to say, or the joy of the son to say to the father, I will go. 
I will fulfill your eternal purposes to redeem a people. How he entered into that with a zeal to make known his father's love. And there we read it in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Do you know God in his love? Do you grasp the degrees and the ends and the extent of his methods and purposes to make that known to you in his son? Oh, that you would be filled with all of the fullness of God. Beloved, we're not there yet. But the power of God is available to us that through his Holy Spirit's work, we might indeed know it. We might come to know him in his fullness. Oh, beloved, we need to go out and exercise our spiritual muscles, don't we? We need to grow, strengthened by the work of the Spirit within us. But let me draw this together, and it's wonderful the way the apostle does this. He says, to him be glory, notice, in the church and in Christ Jesus. In the church and in Christ Jesus. You who know the book of Ephesians know where Paul's headed with this, right? That in chapter 5 we have this section on marriage and how Christ pursued his bride that she might be holy. We know there's a special relationship between the church and Christ. And we saw that even as we concluded the end of chapter 2 and bringing uh, to the point that, that the Father has given to the church his Son. There is this amazing purpose of the Father reflected in marriage that the Son is for the bride and the bride is for the Son. And it is the eternal design of the Father that, that this be the joy of generation after generation unto all eternity. That unique, special, intimate relationship, covenantally secure, unbreakable bond between Christ and his church. And it's not then at all surprising that the apostle in this epistle of all epistles would say that this incredible power which is at work within us, that it might bring glory to God in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Could have said in Christ Jesus, that the glory of God would be manifested in the Son. He could have said that. He didn't say that. In the church and in Christ Jesus. The fullness of the Father's love. Your inclusion within that picture as a child of God is that throughout all eternity, the angels in heaven will adore the beauty of the intimacy that has been established by our Heavenly Father in the wonder of that relationship between the body of Christ and the Lord Jesus. Does it get any richer than that? What is your marriage about anyways? What are you communicating to your children? 
God created marriage specifically to communicate that, that there is an intimacy, there is a love, there is a sacrifice, a selflessness in our marriages. Why? Because all of those things exist in the glorious intimacy of Christ and his bride. And as Paul conceives of what the purposes of God's work is in his church, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Let me urge you, some of us grew up and never learned how to talk to people in authority. You see that in our day. We don't know how to speak to people that we really need to ask. We can't demand. We can't tell. We really need to entreat. It's not too late to learn. We could still bend our knee before the Father from whom every people, every nation is named. And we can seek him for one another as you pray for one another. Lord, may they experience your healing so that they might know the fullness of who you are in their deliverance. May their marriage find peace and joy so that they might know the incredible purposes that you have for intimacy with the Savior and the Lord and giver of life. You see, all of our prayers need to be shaped, need to be packaged, need to be presented to the throne of grace that there, our Heavenly Father might not simply heal, not simply deliver, but glorify his wondrous majesty in each deliverance and in each wondrous work. I entreat you, dear people, whatever is overwhelming you, whatever bears down upon you, or would bear down on you if you thought about it more, bring it to the throne of grace, as Paul brings this petition before the throne of grace, that God might have all glory in the beauty of his people and his son, and that he might rejoice in the fruit of his sacrifice. This text, John Piper wrote about it, said it early on, 30 years ago, he said, I memorized it. Well, you know how fruitful John Piper has been in his writings and his ministry. This is a prayer to take with you. This is a prayer to take to heart. This is a prayer not only for yourself, for your siblings, for your parents, for your spouse, for your elders, for your pastors. This is a prayer for each and every one of us that God would make known his glory as he fills us with the fullness of himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, how wondrous is the truth that the apostle sets forth before us. We don't really grasp it. Not fully, not yet. But strengthen us so that we might. 
particularly as we come to the table, may we see there the fullness of your love in your atoning sacrifice. Grant your grace to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.